Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I am Rick Thomas, and you are listening to Your Daily Drive. I want to talk about in this podcast the unintended danger of the principle-driven life. What I mean by that is that one of the downsides of dividing the Bible into chapters and verses is that it can create a principle-driven discipleship methodology. And what I mean by that is that we can turn the Bible into nuggets and snippets and, and tips that are not in the context of the passage. It's not what the passage means and also... Our behaviors and attitudes and our words are not motivated by the gospel. This is called eisegesis, when we pull text, pull verses, or even words out of the Scripture and give them our meaning but not the original meaning. And so besides this eisegetical approach to Bible study, well, it it can lead to behaviorism. And one of the downsides, in addition to all of these things, is no heart transformation. The worst-case scenario of this is we can become whited sepulchers, whited whitewashed tombs, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 23. And we don't want to do that, so we want to make sure that the principles can be good, but if we are solely a principle-driven individual, there is a possibility and maybe a strong possibility that what you're doing is not connected to Christ, who is the gospel, and not motivated by that gospel. And so I titled this podcast, The Unintended Danger of the Principle-Driven Life. Of course, you're listening to it here, but if you want to read it, I've got over 2,000 words that are waiting for you, and you are more than welcome to read it and to share it and to to spend a lot of time digging around just in this one resource, because what you will find, I have a lot of links embedded in it that will help you to even further explain some of these ideas. Again, the, the title of the podcast is The Unintended Danger of the Principle-Driven Life. Pastor Ken Brown from Trenton, Michigan, we did a, I did a letter conference there back in the fall of 2019. It was a wonderful time, also spoke on Sunday morning, and uh, Ken has been a supporter of our ministry for, I, I don't know, a long time, maybe a couple of years, if not more, and so he was very familiar with me and our resources, so he invited us up, so Lucia and I went up to Trenton, Michigan back uh, in the fall of 2019, I did the conference, and we spent a lot of time talking. Actually, uh, he got a group of people together so that I could share with them about the Mastermind program because he's very interested not just in what we're doing, but also equipping some of his key folks in uh, the idea of uh, of biblical counseling and discipleship and he likes the way that we present it and how we communicate the practical gospel to others. And so it was a great time. And, and Ken and I have, we've had email correspondence going back and forth uh, for the past couple of years about different things. And a, a couple of days ago, he sent me this email, and I did ask him if I could have permission to share it, and he said it would be fine to share it, so I'm going to read it as he wrote it. Ken Brown said, There's a member of my church who is incarcerated, but in whom the Lord is working mightily. 
I speak to him every morning, uh, every Monday by phone. He speaks with his wife every day, and they're going through the Change Me book and absolutely love it. You definitely covered all the bases in that book. It is a tremendous resource. I know that you're encouraged by that, as I am too, that we are able to go into the prisons and speak to this incarcerated person. In fact, Ken told me that he will be excited to know uh, about this and that, that I know about it and that I'm sharing what the Lord is doing in this individual's heart. I want to say a couple of things. I do want you to use our resources that way. And if you want the most concise treatment of let me say this way, the best of our content on discipleship, then you have to get the Change Me book, because there it is. It's a couple of hundred plus pages. I don't remember now, but the Change Me book, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it in our store. It's a paperback, and I would encourage you uh, to get that book. As Ken said, you definitely covered all the bases in that book. It is a tremendous resource, and so this gentleman that's in prison is going through it, and he's he, he and his wife are going through it as, as well. I would also appeal to you that if you, or ask you, that if you want me to come to speak uh, at your church, please, or to your group, please let us know. It would be great to, to be able to do that. I just got a note from Sarah Caldwell in Sarasota, Florida, when Daniel Berger and I were in Sarasota, and their pastor said, I never heard anything like that in 30 years. And uh, someone else said it was epic. Uh, epic is great. We do epic. Uh, and so you can actually invite Daniel and me. We'd both be glad to uh, double date and do a conference for you. And so just let us know. And uh, I would love to be able to, or we can work it out to where we can come to your church. And also uh, be sure that you get the Change Me book as recommended by Ken, the pa- Ken Brown, the pastor uh, in Trenton, uh, Michigan. All right, I want to talk about this idea, the unintended danger of the principle-driven life. Now, one of the things I hope that you will ponder as I talk about the principle-driven life is how we Christians, we can have wide pendulum swings when practicing concepts. Let me give you an example of, of what I'm talking about. How we can, what I'm talking about is that we can overreact to something so much uh, that we do throw the baby out with the bath water. You see, the world says, here's an example, they say we are to love ourselves, and that's where uh, they derive the whole self-esteem, you could say the self-esteem gospel, but the self-esteem movement. And then the Christian reads this, or hears this, or experiences, has experience with it, and they overreact by saying we are not to love ourselves. And the worst case of this is a woe-is-me, sin-centered, worm theology. I want you to think about that overreaction for any Christian. Can you imagine a Christian saying that we are not to love ourselves? There is nothing in Scripture that would support that. See, you're made in the image of God. If you don't love yourself, well, I mean, that is so problematic on so many levels, but one of those, like what James said in 3, 9, and 10, that, that we bless men and curse men. Out of the same mouth come blessing and, and cursing. We're all made in the similitude. We're all made in the, the image of God. My, my brothers, these things ought not to be. Yes, we should love ourselves. You, the author, the creator made us. 
But see, what happens many times is that we so overreact to something that we it's this wide pendulum swing uh, that we actually discount good Bible teaching. Another example is how some biblical counselors are so adamant for their cause that they won't call themselves Christian counselors. Because there are some Christians who use either unbiblical or sub-biblical ideas and practices. Can you hear what these overreacting biblical counselors are saying? They are Christians who do not want to use the word Christian when Christian is who they are. One more example of this is what I call the, the grace crowd. It's the person who came out of legalism, whether it was from a familial or a religious situation, and they finally learn of the doctrines of grace. Praise God for the doctrines of grace. But some of them make the mistake of shining obedience and holiness. Sadly, they only have one worldview for obedience, holiness, righteousness, and it's not a good one. But rather than seeing the necessity of living an obedient life, they make what I call the grace mistake, which means, quote, I can live however I choose. Now, they may not say that out loud, but that's an attitude that you could see with some believers because of where they came from, a legalistic background, they overreact. Biblical counselors don't want to be Christian counselors, and, and, and Christians don't want to be o- obedient, or in the other illustration, we don't want to love ourselves. And so while I'm speaking about a potential error of fixating on the principle-driven life, I am not saying that principles are wrong. Principles, like many things in our lives, can be useful, or they can get in our way. So it would help many of us to, to tap the brakes a bit, don't overreact if that's your tendency, and seek the Lord's wisdom for gray matters. Let's just call it gray matters. Going back to this idea of eisegesis and, and selecting snippets and nuggets and tips and tricks and habits out of the Bible, I have wondered at times what the writers of the New Testament would think about how we have separated the scriptures into verses and in some cases isolated them from their context in which they wrote them. Chapters and verses are vital, and you, you know that. And of course, chapters are, and verses, that's not how Paul, Paul or anybody else, any other writer of the Bible wrote. Now, I hope you know that, but if you don't, you know it now. They didn't write in chapters and verses, but they are vital because they help us find things quickly in our Bibles. How hard would it be sitting in a small group and the leader says, turn to page 763 and start at paragraph 13 and read the next three? That would be weird, right? But with every good idea comes a backside liability, if not a bucket of of liabilities. I've already mentioned three Christians who don't want to love themselves, biblical counselors who don't want to be called Christians, and Christians who don't want to be obedient. One of the most significant problems is when the unlearned isolates verses from their context and and uses those snippets as principles to model their lives. I'm not saying we shouldn't pattern our lives after God's words, 
but we may become only a slightly better version of what our culture offers through their self-help gurus. Ironically, many of those who do not know the Lord take our Bible principles and use them for personal prosperity, agendas, and other desired outcomes. Like the novice believer, the Bible becomes a self-help book for them. Let me give you five examples of where people take a, a verbatim quote from Scripture and, and twist it into something that, that that context does not mean. Probably the most popular one is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not! that you be not judged. And some people would go so far as to say that you can't judge anybody. Let me give you another word for, for judge, just to soften it a little bit, meaning you shouldn't assess anybody, you shouldn't observe anybody, you shouldn't confront anybody, you shouldn't call anybody out with, with compassion, of course. You, you shouldn't speak against the truth. You're judging me. You see how that, that sentence was pulled out of Scripture to mean something it, that it does not mean. It, it's been pumped with steroids, and it doesn't mean all that. Because definitely you should, quote, judge. You, you should assess people. You should learn people. Ephesians 4.26 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I've heard many people in my life say you can't go to bed angry. Do you know how impossible that is? Maybe you've never been so angry. Anger takes a while, sometimes. Now, you can repent of, of some anger, and you can truly be over it. There's other anger moments that happen between two people where it might take a long time. And I've seen people who where they've had horrible things happen to them, and they, they live in this angry frustration, even for years. Now, that's problematic because what the text is teaching, you should not bury it. You should not bury it and leave it unattended because if you leave it unattended, it will grow into many horrific things. But to take the literal statement, don't let the sun go down on your anger, is, is problematic and maybe even painful because in some situations it's just, it's just not that simple. So don't bury your anger. Work on it. Deal with it. Find help if you're really struggling. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And I think you know where some of the crazy places that goes. I mean, they take God's love and they divorce it and they, they separate it from God's justice. And thus you have a squishy, squeezy God who is not Jehovah at all. God is love and he is a God of wrath too. In Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. I'll just say two words, prosperity gospel. Such a big problem. And then Romans 8, 28, All things work together for good for those who love God. People shrink the word good down in this text to, to where it means only things that I want, things, uh, good outcomes for me, according to my interpretation and expectation of what good should be. If you want to read more about that, I have an article here that's titled, What Does All Things Work Together for Good Really Mean? Interesting enough, this is the sermon that I preached at Ken Brown's church in Trenton, Michigan, uh, the Sunday after the conference. The Bible is a self-help book. 
and some biblical counselors they really uh, they really twitch at that as well which i i find it kind of humorous because the bible has helped millions of people yes yeah, a self-help book but my point here is that if a person pulls a verse out of context and uses it for personal purposes though there can be a quick benefit they should be cautious about this habit the worst case of this practice is the individual who uses scripture to manipulate and control someone we have been interacting with someone on our forums today which is a service that we provide to anybody in the world who has access to the internet and this individual was talking about how their spouse is gaslighting them and what i mean by that is their spouse is overtly actively intentionally sinning and then blaming the other spouse using scripture for what they are doing. This is the worst practice of a person who, who rips something out of context, and they use it to manipulate and control. Besides taking a verse out of context, the principle-driven lifestyle, it tends to target the behavior of the individual. Jesus wants to make sure that we know all actions connect to our hearts. Of course, cutting off any bad practice is wise, is ethical, is humble, but if you do not address the ruling motive of the heart, guess what? That behavior, like a stain under, under white paint, is going to reappear. It may surprise you to know that the most typical form of discipleship that folks ask me to do comes from a principle-driven methodology. Rarely will anyone say it, as I have just framed it, though. I suspect most of them aren't aware of what they are asking. In our all-online all school, it's a pleasure to train our mastermind students about this problem of the principle-driven life, the danger of taking passages and verses and sentences and words out of context while helping them gain more insight on how to address the root and the fruit. And thank God there is a new generation of biblical counselors and disciple makers who don't make this error. These transformers, they want something more than a, a Christianized version of behavioral modification. Paul did not intend for us to turn his epistles and paragraphs into isolated principles that we divorce from the original intent. No writer wants their work extracted from its context to live an isolated life on its own. The bane of my existence, which may be overstated, is how many times on Facebook will a person read the blurb and don't, doesn't have enough self-control or diligence to actually find the context before they do when they're drive-by shooting things and say something, uh, say something unkind. It has happened for a decade now. Paul's primary point for writing was to teach his hearers about Christ who is the gospel. Christ and the gospel is a synonym. He is the, the good news. Christ is the total solution to our problems inside and out. Do you need a principle to live by when you have a Savior to imitate? I like to say it this way. Jesus is our principle. I talked about this this idea of isolating and selecting 
tips in my article that's titled, A Good Goal for Husbands, Stop Trying to Be a Good Husband. It's linked here if you want to read it. But the point of that piece was to talk about those who target one sphere of their lives, one slice of their lives, like in this case to be a husband, a good husband, to the exclusion of all the other spheres. The example that I gave in that article was about the husband who strives to be stellar on the job but is a dud at home. The better answer for him is is to be a good Christian, to be a Christ follower, imitating Christ, the principle that we want to imitate. Principles are like that. You know, you pick one, you isolate it, you amplify it, but have a blind spot for other areas of your life that need attention. After you master one, you choose another. I got another principle here, and you strive to excel with that aspect. After a while, you have a a massive bag of marbles that become unwieldy. You can't keep all the principles together. The principle-driven life can be cumbersome. I know it's trite, and sometimes I I don't like to say what I'm about to say because this is a well-worn expression that has also been taken out of context, but it works here. Here it is. You heard it before. You you might have a bracelet, a 25-year-old bracelet that says, What would Jesus do? Or it may say, WWJD. Let Jesus be your principal, and you'll have the fullest life inside and out. Imitate him. One of the illustrations of this in Paul's writings, if you take, the whole book of Ephesians, but in Ephesians 4.1, Paul said this, listen, he said, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he's telling us to be good Christians, to behave right, to, to exhibit Christ right, behaviorally is what he's talking about. But notice at that verse, he made an intentional division in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul divided the book. The book of Ephesians neatly divides into two main parts, and it's vital for you to understand this. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul goes to great lengths to tell us about the gospel. What I mean is to tell us about the works and the life of Christ. He he gives us so much wonderful and rich content about salvation, regeneration, predestination, and and what Christ did and what it means. He's laying a foundation, a theological soteriology of what it means to be in Christ because of Christ and what he's done for you. You've been regenerated and transformed, made into a new creature. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then at chapter 4, beginning at verse, verse 1, I just said, I, therefore, Paul said, a prisoner of the Lord, now I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you see what he's doing here? In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he tells us about Christ, the gospel, his works, his life, and what it has done for us. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he tells us how to live practically because of the gospel. And there is the continuum, gospel-centered reality and transformation. And what flows out of that 
is a practical, behavioral, gospel-centered life. Paul wants us to live a life based on chapters 1, 2, and 3. He did not begin the book of Ephesians by giving us a bunch of rules and principles to live by. Those came later in chapters 4, 5, and 6. What he did first is talk about our gospel foundation for why we should live the Christ life. Our hearts must be affected, transformed, and affected first of all. If we do not root our behaviors in the gospel, we run the, in Christ, we run the risk of being a behaviorist. Even a gospel-centered legalist, think about that collection of terms. The New Testament Pharisees are the worst illustrations of how this happens. The one thing you must make sure of is whether or not your motivations for all you do flow out of the person and work of Christ who is the gospel. If you want to read the most horrific uh, illustration of that, just read Matthew 23, the entire chapter. Some Christians are content to have a changed life without living a gospel-centric one, which means better circumstances. That's what they want. I want to give you a few ways that you might see this worldview acted out among fellow Believers. Now, I'm going to give you some quotes, but I realize that very few folks would be so bold to say these things out loud. And so these are not direct quotes that are attached to anybody that I'm aware of, but they do describe a pragmatic, meaning a results-oriented perspective. Here's four quotes that talk about this. Just give me, give me the tip. I'm not so much... Uh, concerned about being transformed or having affection for Christ. One, I just want my husband to stop being the way he is. Two, the church is an excellent place for children to learn moral behavior. You're going to notice with all of these that, that in one sense, these are good things. Number three, we need some tips on how to get along. Just give us some tips on how to get along. And then number four, I have found that practicing Bible principles at work helps me succeed. Now, like what I mentioned at the top of this article and just said a few moments ago, we want, don't want to be one of those wild pendulum-swinging people. We all want spouses and children doing well. I want my children behaving morally, and I know that the church is a great place to help supplement what we are doing in our homes. And, and of course, my wife wants me to stop being a knucklehead, and, and I understand her desire, and we want to learn how to get along, which, which is also a, a normal request for normal people. And it's wise to be like Jesus in the workplace. But from a conscience perspective, no Christian discipler should settle for principle-driven teaching method alone. We have to guard against providing preferred outcomes to people without connecting all we do to the gospel. I cannot exclusively teach communication principles to anyone exclusively, which is one of the more frequent requests from marriage for for marriage partners. They don't get along, which means they are choosing not to get along. Any couple can get along. It's a choice. If you look into their history, you will see a time when they did communicate well and got along with each other. Like most issues similar to this, it's not an I can't problem, but a I won't problem. 
I could and I should give them communication tips. I'll give them scores of communication tips so that they can start breaking down those walls that they have been building for a decade or more. My mistake would be not giving just uh, just giving them tips but not discerning their unique relationship with Christ. If God has not regenerated them then they have no gas and they will not get far down the road before they break down or blow up at each other. Tip only counseling is nothing more than a secular counseling teaching them habits and tricks that may make for better behaviors in the short term, but not transform hearts. Some of our Christian discipleship has not evolved past the change the situation rather than the person methodology. We must give our brothers and sisters more than what our culture provides because we can. Tips, tricks, techniques are useful to a point. But the gospel is more significant, and it's more transformative. The title of this article is, and the podcast, The Unintended Danger of the Principle-Driven Life. In this article here, I have a a short video, and it's titled, What It Means to Live a Gospel-Centered Life from a, a Practical Perspective. I would love for you to watch it. It's quite popular, and people have benefited tremendously from it. Also, as usual, I have call to action questions for you that will help you as a as a tutor as a coach as you process this content and I would love to I'd love for you to get on this article on our website and read these questions and it would be even for a double bonus to talk to someone about them and I think you would benefit tremendously thank you so much for listening Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.